This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, copyright 1989 by Gary North. This book is dedicated to Joan Andrews, who was the victim of injustice because she was not accompanied by a sufficient number of dedicated, risk-taking peers. Our nation cannot continue down the path of abortion, so radically at odds with our history, our heritage, and our concepts of justice. This sacred legacy and the well-being and the future of our country demand that protection of the innocents must be guaranteed, and that the personhood of the unborn be declared and defended throughout the land. In legislation introduced at my request in the first session of the 100th Congress, I have asked the legislative branch to declare the humanity of the unborn child and the compelling interest of the several states to protect the life of each person before birth. This duty to declare on so fundamental a matter falls to the executive as well. By this proclamation, I hereby do so. Now therefore I, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim and declare the inalienable personhood of every American from the moment of conception until natural death. And I do proclaim, ordain, and declare that I will take care that the Constitution and laws of the United States are faithfully executed for the protection of America's unborn children. Upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind, and the gracious favor of Almighty God. I also proclaim Sunday, January 17, 1988, as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. I call upon the citizens of this blessed land to gather on that day in their homes and places of worship, to give thanks for the gift of life they enjoy, and to reaffirm their commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of every human life. In witness whereof, I hear to a Hereunto set my hand this 14th day of January in the year of our Lord 1988 and of the independence of the United States of America, the 212th, Ronald Reagan. Preface Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shall that divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto thy fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, wheresoever thou goest. Joshua 1, 6-9 This passage is a familiar one. God was sending the second generation of liberated Israelites into a seven-year military conflict, the war for the Promised Land. The first generation had died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb, and now Joshua was about to lead Israel into battle. The first generation had refused to fight, and had been ready to stone Joshua and Caleb for saying that God would give them the victory, Numbers 14. God had killed them for their lack of faith, as he had promised almost forty years earlier. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, 
As ye have spoken in mine ear, so will I do to you. Your carcass shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless ye shall not come into the land, concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye said would be prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. Numbers 14, 28-32 God had imposed his national negative sanctions against them for their personal and corporate cowardice and lack of faith in him. Now Joshua was the new national leader. His claim almost 40 years earlier was about to be vindicated by God. Notice the five major points of God's instruction to Joshua. First, God, the sovereign Lord of history, is commanding them. He is present with them. He refers to Moses as representative and national leader over Israel in his instructions to Joshua, his new representative and national leader. Third, he tells Joshua to honor and obey the law of God. Fourth, he tells him that if he and the people obey his law, they will prosper. Fifth, he tells them that they will inherit the land. This is the Bible's five-point covenant model. God reminded Joshua of all five points before he led them into battle. It was on the basis of this covenant and its promises that Joshua was expected to have courage. When Christians face a corporate challenge to their faith, they must exercise corporate responsibility. Today, Christians are in a war, a war against secular humanism. The leaders of the humanist camp are far more self-conscious about this war than most Christians are. This is why they have an initial advantage. But that advantage can and will be overcome as Christians rediscover their heritage of successful resistance to tyranny. The recovery of this heritage must begin with an understanding of the biblical covenant model. Faithful Christians should no longer ignore the comprehensive nature of this war. The enemy's army is advancing toward us whether we acknowledge it or not. It has been advancing since the day that Satan entered the garden. Let us not be so foolish or naive as Eve when the first shots of this ethical and judicial war were fired. But let us also not forget that this enemy army is now governed by a new strategy, a strategy of counterattack. Jesus Christ at Calvary inflicted a mortal head wound on the enemy commander as predicted by God, Genesis 3.15. Satan's forces are now fighting a defensive battle like Germany at the Battle of the Bulge in late 1944. This battle looks like an offensive campaign, but it is really defensive. When Christians at last realize the full implications of the resurrection and ascension of Christ to heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit to his people, they will launch a series of offensive campaigns in every battlefield of life. They will mop up the enemy. Until Christians do not begin to take the resurrection seriously, they will find themselves on the defensive. But these defensive battles can be won. Let me give you an example. The Nebraska School War, 1981-84. through 84. In 1982, Pastor Everett Sullivan of the Faith Baptist Church of Louisville, Nebraska, was thrown in jail. What was his crime? Refusing to hire state-licensed teachers and use a state-authorized curriculum in his church's school. As headmaster, he had refused to comply with state regulations for several years. In 1982, the sheriff of Cass County walked into a Sunday school class one Sunday morning and served him with a subpoena. The war had gone to stage two. Fortunately, the church had purchased a videotape camera and recorded this and a whole series of outrages that were to follow. 
These media-compelling segments received national attention through television, although primarily on secular television reports. The Eyewitness News crowd cannot resist hot videotapes of live action, since Eyewitness News is so seldom actually Eyewitness News. As it turns out, this videotape camera was crucial to the church's remarkable victory in Nebraska. Anyone who fails to recognize the power of this simple tool in a media war probably does not understand that public confrontations are inescapably media wars. Not only is such a naive person unlikely to win the media war, he is probably not going to get involved in one. Too unspiritual, you understand. Not all the Christian media got on board. The Louisville school case, sad to say, although the 700 Club did produce a couple of reports on the crisis, the popular We're High on Jesus TV shows refused, as usual, to take sides. Too controversial. Might hurt the ratings. Five years later, national controversy hit two of these national television ministries and damaged all the rest. At least two Christian media representatives would have been wiser to have spent more time covering the Nebraska school war and less time uncovering their consorts. Cass County ordered the school, the church's school closed. When Reverend Sullivan refused, the county threw him in jail. As word of his arrest spread, accompanied by an emotionally moving videotape of the sheriff hauling him off to jail, hundreds of pastors around the country began to stream into tiny Louisville. They were not famous pastors. Famous pastors stayed discreetly silent. They were pastors of small communities who recognized how vulnerable their churches and schools were. Local residents kept, kept deeply resented these outside agitators in the same way that white residents in the South hated the Freedom Riders and the protesters in the early 1960s. The local residents of Louisville, Nebraska, like local residents everywhere, worship their public schools, whether or not they worship God or attend church. They tie their children to the state in these schools, generation after generation. Very few of them tie to a church. Reverend Sullivan was calling into question the morality and legality of the entire system of state licensing of private schools, and he was gaining national attention for his protest against this universally accepted tyranny. The state of Nebraska was being made to look foolish in the eyes of the nation, and it was Sullivan who was the cause of this. So Reverend Sullivan and his supporters became persona non grata in Louisville, Nebraska. Meanwhile, the respectable churches of Nebraska stayed safely quiet. If they had a Christian school, and few did, their schools were safely registered with the states and had been for years. Sullivan was making a moral and legal issue out of a law that they had capitulated two years earlier. Sullivan would get no support from these churches. The state legislatures were, legislators were outraged that anyone would challenge the state laws that made it almost impossible to start a Christian high school that greatly restricted the operation of day, small day schools. What business was it of these outsiders? What business is it of the national evening news teams? They resented all these outside agitators. Most of all, they resented the media attention their tyranny was receiving. This war was fought and won on television and in the courts. That much became clear by late 1984. It was becoming clearer in 1983. The local county judge grew frightened and stepped down from the case. The county brought in another judge from a nearby county to continue the pressure. His name, astoundingly, was Ronald Reagan. He cracked down on the school. The battle was escalating around the state. Twenty other schools also refused to comply. Pastors were being sent to jail. Half a dozen fathers in Sullivan's church were sent to jail. Sullivan was released from jail, but then was threatened with imprisonment again, 
for contempt of court. He fled across the state line into, uh, into Iowa in the fall of 1983. His adult daughter, a teacher in the school, also had to flee the state. This was war. The visiting pastors began holding nightly prayer meetings. Under court authorization, the sheriff and his men ordered these pastors to leave the church one night. The pastors refused. The sheriff then sent his men into the church and dragged out dozens of pastors. This was stupid. Really stupid. It was all being videotaped. The reaction of the sheriff to the action of the pastors created a classic media event. The, me the videotape reaction led to the next phase of the war. The sheriff was media perfect. It was as if he had been sent in from central casting. A big, gruff, arrogant man, he looked every inch a bully. It was clear on camera that he was not about to pay any attention to the civil rights of the Christians. All he cared about was that he'd been authorized by Cass County to shut down this little church school, and if necessary, the church itself, and if this meant dragging a bunch of praying pastors out of the church, well, so much for the power of prayer. Reverend Ed Rowe had written a paperback book about the events of 1982, the day they padlocked the church, Huntington House, 1983. The wonders of modern printing technology were put to use in a righteous cause. So were the technological wonders of videotape. The edited videotape of the police dragging pastors out of the church was used to mobilize other churches around the nation. The church was immediately reopened. The war escalated. Hundreds of pastors streamed into Louisville. Visiting pastors now began to pray Psalm 83 against the sheriff and the county government. Christians are not familiar with Psalm 83. They need to be. It includes this section. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin at the brook of Kishon, which perished at Endor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, all the princes of Zeba and Zamuna, who said, Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. O my God, make them like a wheel, as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth a wood, as the flame setteth the mountains on fire, so persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. Psalm 83, 9-18 The pastors prayed other similar psalms, called imprecatory psalms, and prayers. They took turns as teachers in the school. They took turns as co-head as co-headmasters of the school. Some of them even brought their children from out of state to enroll, just to give the kids an opportunity to take part in a historic event. In response to the preliminary phase of this Nebraska school war, I decided in 1982, as co-editor of Christianity and Civilization, a scholarly journal being published by Geneva Ministries of Tyler, Texas, to produce a journal dealing with Christian resistance. I sent out letters to prospective authors, asking them if they had anything to contribute. I was flooded with responses. Eventually, we published two volumes, The Theology of Christian Resistance, which was almost 350 pages, and Tactics of Christian Resistance, which was almost 500 pages. I carried copies of the second volume to Nebraska when I visited in early December of 1983. I wrote up the story in the December 16, 1983 issue of my newsletter, Remnant Review. I immediately received cancellations from Christian conservatives in Nebraska. They were outraged at my report. I was uninformed, they said. Sullivan was a troublemaker and an outlaw, they said. We should all leave Nebraska alone, they said. 
Revolving teams of 20 pastors each had gone to the governor's office for a meeting. I will not meet with those lawbreakers, he vowed. These groups still came to his office week after week. At last he met with them, then in desperation over the national media coverage and also about the state's inability to shut down the schools, he created a blue-ribbon commission of experts from outside the state to study the matter. Much to the legislature's consternation, the panel said the state was way, way out of line. That was the beginning of the end for the state of Nebraska's war on Christian schools. Next, a lawyer provided to the church by a national Christian ministry sued in federal district court and won. The court had indeed violated the First Amendment rights of the pastors when the sheriff dragged them out of that prayer meeting. Next, the sheriff had a heart attack and resigned. Finally, the state capitulated. It passed a law that virtually freed Christian schools from all state control. The outside agitator had won. Through their efforts as his representatives, God, the ultimate outside agitator, had also won. But all the way to the finish line, the vast majority of churches in Nebraska and everywhere else had remained silent. They had not wanted trouble. They had preferred to capitulate silently to evil. They were like the cowardly tribes of Israel, of whom Deborah sang, Gilead abode beyond Jordan, and why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Judges 5.17 It was only the little people and little churches that protested. The respectable folks in Nebraska stayed at home in the fall of 1983 to watch Nebraska's number one rated college football team on television. The season was capped by a trip to the January 1, 1984 Orange Bowl where Nebraska lost by one point in the final minute, shattering the dreams and vicarious egos of Cornhusker fans for another year. God is not mocked. At least two pastors whom I met at the meeting in Nebraska told me that their state boards of education were watching Nebraska protests very closely. The pastors said that if the Christians lost in Nebraska, their states were ready to crack down on unregistered Christian schools. But the state lost in, in Nebraska, and Christian schools around the nation received several years of breathing room. Christians had protested. They had run a successful challenge to a well-entrenched humanist tyranny. Nebraska's Board of Education had been tyrannical throughout the century. It was Nebraska which, in a patriotic fury during World War I, restricted the teaching of foreign languages in the public school, since the most popular foreign language was German. With very little support from Christian, the Christian community, locally or nationally, and with many arrests and the dedicated opposition of both the state and local civil government, Christians won the battle in 1984. This precedent should not be forgotten today. Operation Rescue Beginning in the summer of 1988, we began to see a replay of those 1983 protests. This, this time the issue was abortion. The war had now escalated dramatically. Operation Rescue had begun to mobilize Christians around the United States. Christians are standing in the doorways of prophets seeking abortion mills in order to keep murderous mothers from their accomplices, the state-licensed, state-protected, U.S. Supreme Court-authorized abortionists. They intervene in the name of God and the unborn victims. They interpose their bodies between the mothers and the physicians. Once again, the local communities that have passively allowed these murderous abortion mills to flourish are complaining about outside agitators. And once again, the Christian community is divided. Once again, fearful, conventional, and respectable churches have refused to bless these tactics of nonviolent resistance, fearing local controversy more than they fear the wrath of God over murdered babies. Once again, the media 
has proven crucial to the conflict. And once again, the question has been raised by the critics, especially the Christian critics. By what authority are these people breaking the law? When justice is aborted is an answer to this question, whenever and wherever it is raised. I wrote this book in six working days. I had a, I had sent a, out a flyer by Randall Terry, the organ, organizer of Operation Rescue, in October 1988, mailing of my Institute for Christian Economics, P.O. Box 8000, Tyler, Texas, 75711. I received a letter from a pastor regarding this flyer. Why had I sent this? Didn't I know about Operation Rescue's tactics? This pastor has long been publicly opposed to abortion. If he was ready to call Operation Rescue's tactics into question, it was time to provide some explicitly biblical answers. Of course, I already had. The two volumes of Christianity and Civilization were five years old in 1988, but the first was out of print, and the few copies remaining of the second on tactics of Christian resistance were forgotten. Something else was needed, something shorter, cheaper, and easier to read. I started the manuscript on this book of this book on October 29, a Saturday morning, took Sunday off, and finished the first draft on the following Wednesday. I sent photocopies by overnight mail to several Christian leaders. Two leaders then suggested that I write an appendix, refuting published criticisms of Operation Rescue, which I did the following week. That took an extra day. I spent another day tinkering with the manuscript to prepare a final draft. So this book was basically a one-week operation. That I could do this in one week is a testimony to the power of the biblical covenant model, the WordPerfect 4.2 word processing program, and the Godspeed computerized Bible search program. Once you understand the Bible's five-point covenant model, you can solve lots of intellectual, moral, and judicial problems fairly easily. In fact, once you memorize this model, you will recognize it again and again as you read the Bible. Much of the Bible is structured in terms of this model. Once it gets into your mind, it does not get out. Without this model, biblical solutions are far more difficult to come by. So I strongly suggest that you take this five-point model seriously, keeping it in mind as you read your Bible and turning to it whenever you're called upon to defend what you're doing in the name of Jesus Christ. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.